Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Cyberology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and how much is that doggy in the browser window? The one that might not actually exist. Fraud involving the sale of pets online is an emotional issue, but not one that really makes the headlines as much as it perhaps should. This episode, we'll be talking with Jennifer Shalley, Associate Teaching Professor of Criminal Justice at Pennsylvania State University, and Kaylee Derrickson, have been working to better understand victimization resulting from PET scams online. We will, of course, also be joined later in the episode by Professor Nicola Vermey to answer a silly question about cybercrime law. The word ontological comes up a few times in the conversation about PET scams, and if you are anything like me, you might appreciate the reminder that ontology deals with the nature of being and perhaps the fundamental entities and the relationships that come together in a system of reality. But before we get lost into a weird philosophical mire, we'll just get down to the interview and we'll ask Dr. Shelley why it was that she began to work on PET scams. This project is really a converging of many of my interests. When I started my PhD program, I actually started as an environmental sociologist and my main interest was like animals and society. So I ended up switching to criminology from environmental sociology. And when I switched to criminology, I kind of kept that interest in animals by focusing in on green criminology. Um, And then, of course, green criminology has this overlap with white collar crime. And once I finished my PhD and started as full-time faculty, I developed a course on white collar crime. So I've been teaching white collar crime as well. So I've kind of got this animals thing, the green criminology, the white collar crime. But then also I have an interest in victimology and victimization and as well as um, narrative and qualitative methods. So this project is really kind of like a convergence of all of those things. And one other thing I wanted to add about that is that I kind of started thinking about this project in 2020 when I first read the um, Whitaker and Button article about pet scams. And I was actually starting my own research personally because I was planning to buy a dog soon. So I kind of read this article and was doing my own breeder research at that time in 2020. And then it just sort of blossomed from there. As an academic, you've got sort of an extra level of crime awareness available to you in the form of academic papers. Yeah. And I think that was helpful for me when I was buying my dog because, you know, I sort of, I already knew like kind of what to watch out for. And so, and I guess we'll probably get into this a little bit later. um, But when I was doing that research, one of the things that I did was start Uh, joining some Facebook groups that were focused on pet scams or stopping pet scams. And you, Kaylee? The way I got into it actually was um, I am employed by uh, Penn State Harrisburg. I am a a graduate assistant, so I essentially just help whichever professors I'm assigned to with various tasks. And this was my first semester working with Dr. Shelley. Um, I had her as an actual like um, professor in my classes, but I'd never done any work for her. And this was an interesting time for me because I knew I wanted to graduate and I was up in the air about whether I'd do a thesis, whether I'd write a master's paper essentially what I was going to do. And I was in the works of trying to select a topic and I was being very specific, trying to just come up with this never heard about, never researched topic, just trying to make this paper as like stellar as I could. 
and Dr. Shiley had assigned me some research to look into, start drafting a literature review and things like that. And the deeper and deeper I got into this research, the more I realized that there really isn't a lot done in this area. So Dr. Shelley was like, well, how about if you do it as your thesis, like the beginning parts of the research, obviously there's a lot more we'd like to do with it, but um, just use the spirit thesis. And I was like, that's a, that's a great idea. So it allowed me to kind of fall into the project necessarily without me really going out and looking for it. So you were looking for a unicorn topic and you found one on puppies instead. Yeah, which I never really even thought about if I'm being completely honest. It's, kind of, it's such a niche topic which I think that's why it was really fun for um, me to look into. So what is a pet scam? What's going on when people are trying to buy dogs over the internet? What's happening is people are going online just because that's, you know, easiest, most convenient way that most people shop now. And people are going online and they're finding fraudulent breeders, people who are claiming that they have animals to sell. People reach out to these breeders and ask for information and ask for pictures. And these supposed breeders are these or these internet scammers are sending them fake pictures of dogs, fake information, and essentially conning people into purchasing animals that do not exist. So they'll ask for money up front. Typically it's through something like a a PayPal friends and family where you're not able to get a refund if you've been duped. Um they're very smart with how they ask for the money up front. And then once that money's been sent, the scammer, the breeder, Well, then come back and be like, oh, I need more money now. I have uh, vet bills for the dog. You need certifications for the dog. You need special crates for me to ship this animal. And they'll just keep over time collecting more and more and more money from the individual until they eventually put an end to it themselves. Right. So someone will go online to buy a dog. They'll find one that they like. They'll see pictures of it and stuff, but that's all made up and they'll make a down payment, but then there'll be some reason why they can't. And it just keeps sucking money out of the person until they end up spending a lot for a dog that doesn't exist. Yeah. And oftentimes they will um, steal the photos and information from legitimate breeders. So it looks real. It looks like a legitimate website or a legitimate social media profile. There'll be dogs that do exist, but they just are not in the possession right of the scammer. So not only do we sort of have the victims that are that are being scammed, but the legitimate breeders are having their, you know, they're having their photos and their identities stolen in a way. We did kind of come across that in the study where one, I think Kaylee, one of the interviews that you did, the participant was concerned about the folks who had had their photos stolen from their website and they made a point to, you know, kind of reach out to that person. So, so the victims that we interviewed are, you know, not really the only victims. Scam victims are sort of notoriously difficult to talk to because they're quite often ashamed and things are underreported anyway. So how did you go about getting in contact with victims of these kinds of fraud and being able to do the interview? As I mentioned, I did join a bunch of Facebook groups that are dedicated to stopping pet scams. There's quite a lot of them. I can't remember the exact number of groups that I did join. Uh, So what I had planned to do was I'm going to recruit in these groups. I'm going to post a message on, you know, on these Facebook groups stating that, I'm a faculty researcher and post a link to my page 
to, so that they could, you know, check it and see that I'm a legitimate person. Because the one thing I was worried about is that we were giving $25 Amazon gift cards as a token of appreciation for participation. So the concern was, well, they're going to think that it's a scam because, you know, oh, I'm giving you, you know, giving away $25 gift cards. But the thought was, I'm going to go ahead and post in these, in these forums, in these groups, and that folks are going to just want to talk to me, right? However, that is not what happened. Uh, I did go ahead and attempt to post in all of these groups, but the groups were moderated. So they all had administrators or moderators who would check all of the posts before allowing them. So none of my posts were being approved by the admins or moderators. So I waited a while, like maybe a week or two, and no one was posting. So then I decided to reach out directly to the admins of all of the groups that I was attempting to post in. And it took talking to several admins quite extensively. I mean, I actually had Zoom meetings with some of the admins just so that they would know that, hey, this is real. This is legitimate. I know that they were trying to protect their group members, you know, because they don't want them to be scammed again. I, I, I understand that. We definitely ran into a lot more gatekeeping than I initially had thought we would, which I probably should have known better, right? As, as a qualitative researcher, I should have known that, you know, we were going to perhaps run into some of these issues. But we did end up getting quite a few interviews. I Before we ran into the issues, I was able to get through to one group that didn't have a moderator ad admins. And I think I got three interviews from that. Then once we sort of made our inroads with the admins and moderators and in other groups, then we ended up with a total of nine interviews. I actually have done 10 at this point, um, but we're only going to be talking about the first nine that we did uh, in terms of the findings, because we have those already kind of written up as preliminary findings. It's, it's interesting that you note that issue with the use of gift cards, because all of the alternatives require that you know the person's bank details or at least their address to send them a check. Offering a gift card may look like it's a scam, but you don't really have very many alternatives. So it's it's kind of puts you in an awkward position. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, I mean, anything else would have raised even more red flags and would have probably put us in a position where, you know, really no one would want to talk to us if we were like, hey, well, we'll send you, you know, we'll Venmo you cash or we'll PayPal you cash. Like then I think they would really not want to talk. So yeah, I mean, that that's really the best option. But even still, like you said, it, people were skeptical about it. In one of the Facebook groups that you were recruiting in, it was simply your post was being circulated and comments were being made like, oh, don't talk to these people, more scammers. Like they were very skeptical of us. So once you'd overcome those issues with sort of the support of the administrators, how did the, how did the interviews go? What, how was that process? So Kaylee did the majority of the interviews. I, I did four of the of the 10 total that we have. And she did the rest. From my perspective, I think the interviews went really well. One of the first ones I did was amazing. This woman was very forthcoming with everything that had happened. And she was grateful for the opportunity to talk about it. And I think that once people started talking to us, and, and I, I mean, I think there might have been some level of apprehension in the beginning. But I think that once they started talking to us and realized like, okay, this is definitely not a scam. This is definitely a legitimate thing. And I'm having a chance to talk about what happened to me. I think that 
people were happy about it. Like, I think that they were glad for the opportunity to talk to us about what had happened. Yeah, I found it very rare that I really had to pry for information. Uh, Sometimes when you're asking open-ended questions with people, you don't necessarily get the information you're really looking for. I felt at times that their answers were very brief and not super specific. And I felt like I had to ask them to elaborate a little bit more, but probably a good 99% of the time, people were just willing to speak about their experience. And I think they were glad that they had somebody else who would listen that wasn't like friends, family, somebody that's standing from a non-judgmental position. Because I feel like a lot of the time with victims of scams and things like that, they are too embarrassed or too shy to talk to the people in their lives about it. So I feel like having some third party that is there solely to understand what happened and not feel any sort of judgment. Um, I think people were just really willing to then speak about it without fear. Was there any response or any discussion that you would have never anticipated? Yeah, um, there was one um, that's really sticking out to me right now. And that's when I asked people like how they coped in the aftermath of their victimization. and. Every single one of my participants said that they took to to the internet, not only to speak to other people about their experience, which I expected. However, this desire to help other people and prevent other scams from happening in the future, I didn't foresee that at all. Whether that was providing um, support to people who had been scammed or even people going out of their way to find other scammers and report their pages and take them down and warn everybody. I termed it online vigilantism in my paper about how going out and seeking justice for other people is almost serving as a proxy for seeking justice for themselves. Because even though they can't take down their own scammer or they can't get justice for what happened to them, they can by proxy go and do that for somebody else. Everybody just had some type of informal way of coping through this informal help seeking and helping others. It's just preliminary results so far, but what what are the results that you're seeing in the data that you have up until now? In the preliminary findings, we have several themes. I think the main one, which is, is not surprising, is this idea of self-blame, right? So pretty much all of the participants blamed themselves in, in one way or another and, you know, used words to describe themselves like naive, silly, stupid, foolish. And another thing with the the self-blame is that we saw a lot of, you know, hindsight is 2020 kind of stuff, right? Where people now, you know, looking back on what had happened to them, you know, they're thinking like, I should have known better. I should have been able to do something or, you know, make this not happen or whatever. So I like the way that Kaylee had you know, worded this and talked about it and or discussed it in our thesis is that, you know, people were blaming themselves for something that their past selves should have known, but they, they couldn't have because they didn't. And so they're being extra hard on themselves for these events that happened. So I think that the self-blame is definitely one of the major pieces. And uh, as we're talking about the findings, I think it's important to point out that we're using, you know, the narrative victimology theoretical framework, right? So, I mean, that's really what we're kind of testing this, uh, testing, I want to put that in air quotes, right? Because I mean, we're not, we're not quantitative, right? We're not really testing the theory, um, but we are comparing our findings against, you know, this, this theoretical framework. And, you know, the first element of that theoretical framework by Pemberton and colleagues is this idea of victimization as 
um, an ontological assault, right? So it's this event or this thing that happens to us that changes us, that basically alters our sense of self. And not only that, but it will influence our future thoughts and behaviors, right? Because as who we are changes based on whatever, right? Based on whether it's, you know, external or internal experiences, you know, as we experience those changes, then of course, we're going to approach new situations differently, right? As our new selves. So really that self-blame, you know, kind of goes along with that, right? So we see like, this is an ontological assault. We see ourselves differently now. Now we see ourselves as someone who's foolish, as someone who's silly, naive, right? So we're now going to approach new situations differently. And I think that the coping comes in there as well, right? Because now, you know, these folks who previously, they wouldn't have had any reason to like, oh, let me go online and start exposing a bunch of puppy scammers, right? So, but now this experience has motivated them and has changed their, you know, their future behaviors. So that I would say is like one of the major, major things. With the self-blame, I think the one thing that I found really interesting and also didn't expect was that with the self-blame, a lot of our more educated participants, because that was one of our demographic questions that we asked was um, how much like schooling have you completed? A lot of our more educated ones, like people who have completed professional degrees are, we even had a doctor, somebody with a PhD in our sample, and they would fall back on this idea of, I have such and such degree, I should know better, I should really know better. And that was referred to a lot when talking about themselves, especially with the uh, person who had the PhD. Like she kept coming back to this idea with, I have a doctorate, I do research, and um, I just can't believe I fell for this. Like anybody, if I could fall for it, anybody could fall for it. And to me, this kind of, with this ontological assault situation where um, somebody who once thought of themselves as being above this now no longer feels that way about themselves. So I found that really interesting in the study. It's a really interesting proposition. And you'll have to forgive me because I exist on a diet of comic books and movies. But would I be right in suggesting that little Bruce Wayne saw himself as a boy until his his parents were, were killed in an alley beside a cinema? And then his ontological definition sort of changed at that point and he became Batman, the Avenger of crimes that happened in the night. That sounds accurate to me. Don't really know much about your victimology theory. So, so the main elements of the narrative victimology is just basically the victimization as the ontological assault. So, I mean, we're borrowing from narrative criminology, which basically is a subfield that was founded by Lois Presser. And, you know, the main argument of this is that offenders, right? Because it's about offender narratives, right? When we're just talking about narrative criminology, is that, you know, the stories that offenders tell about themselves is not just about making meaning of their actions, right? But it's also an impetus for action, right? So that's the whole idea of the narrative turn is that, you know, stories are not just about making meaning, but they are about creating the future, so whatever stories we tell about ourselves is going to impinge on what we do in the future. So that is the main piece of narrative criminology and narrative victimology as well, right? We also start to incorporate the ideas of coping, right? Or the coping strategies and how do those 
get basically incorporated into the narrative. Um, the coping mechanisms end up sort of helping to make meaning for the individuals, right, for the victims. But then it also, again, impinges upon like what are we what are we do, going to do moving forward? But then we're also looking at experience of the justice system and how does that fit into the narrative or how does that work into uh, the victim experience and then also the societal reaction. So the experience of the justice system. So that's, I mean, I don't think I need to really explain. So this is like formal, like have we reported this to the authorities? How, how were we treat it? Was it sort of a re-victimization experience or was it a positive experience? Do we um, have more, you know, victim blaming? Like what, what happened with that? And then the societal reaction is just more about like, what reaction did you get? You know, did you talk to friends and family about it? You know, how were you treated by people who knew or who know that this happened to you? Um, so those are kind of like the main elements of the theoretical framework, because it's all about the, the story, right? It's all about the stories that the victims tell and how does that affect who they are, right? Their identities and, and what they do then. So I might ask Kaylee, do you want to reflect on, on those sort of four elements? Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of touched on the self-blame one already in the hindsight bias and things like that. Most of our participants actually didn't reach out to any sort of law enforcement whatsoever. Um, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, two or three did. Um, essentially, nothing really came of it. There was really nothing that police officers were able to do for them. Now, they didn't report having a negative experience with the police. That's not the issue at all. Their only gripe with the situation was that um, nothing could be done. So they didn't feel like the officer shamed them for what happened to them. They didn't feel any sort of way towards the police. They were, however, upset that there was really nothing that they were able to do for them. Most of our participants didn't reach out to um, any sort of law enforcement whatsoever. Basically, they knew that there was nothing that they were going to be able to do. But one story that I found fascinating was I asked the woman, you know, why did you not reach out to any law enforcement? Um, why did you not report your victimization? And she had basically said that a couple of months prior, her daughter, her car had been broken into. They called the police and she reported having an extremely negative experience with the police in that situation. Um, she said that, you know, they didn't really do anything. They didn't even take any notes. They just kind of looked around said we'll be in touch and drove away essentially, which I found interesting because now going forward in the future, she now has this perception that the police are not going to help. And that's why she decided not to call the police because she was like, well, they weren't helpful in this situation. So they're definitely not going to be helpful now. I also had another gentleman say something kind of similar. Um, he lives in a densely populated area in California where police only come out for the major things. Like he had a break in and called the police, nothing really happened. So he's like, I'm not going to call for this reason. So I just think that is interesting because now their perceptions of what the police can do or are going to do for them have changed. And now with this new perception moving forward, they're not going to call law enforcement, which I thought was very interesting. I think that's really interesting, too, because they have experienced this ontological assault, right? They have experienced this change in, in themselves, but it wasn't the victimization experience that we're asking about. It's actually a victimization experience that happened prior to that, right, that we're seeing 
yes, this is affecting, you know, how they're, you know, how they're moving through the world post-victimization. And we did ask, you know, one of our questions was to ask if they had had any previous victimization experiences, if they felt comfortable to to share about it. So in terms of the experience of the justice system, one thing that we found is that, so it wasn't necessarily specific to the justice system, but we did include it um, in our theme of formal help seeking along with those folks who did call law enforcement. It's anyone who tried to report it to, you know, the credit card company, PayPal, their bank or anything like that, any kind of like filing some kind of formal report or complaint. So we kind of did include that. So some people did uh, report to their banking institutions or credit card companies, things like that. However, the one thing that I found happened most often and something that I found that was the most interesting was that these scammers would actually have these people pay through PayPal, which I get, essentially there's two portals. There is the friends and family portal that allows you to send money between people that you already know. And then there's a second option um, for people who buy and sell things online or just generally you don't know this person. And there's extra fees associated with paying this way. But basically, if you pay through the business style portal, um, it guarantees protection for the buyer in cases where they were to be scammed, they'd be able to get their money back from PayPal. However, these scammers know this and they were having these people pay through the friends and family portal, which some people did notice and were hesitant. However, they did it anyway. And we also had some older people who just aren't as literate with the internet who just don't fully understand what they're doing. So these people are paying through friends and family. And when they go to get their money back, PayPal is coming back to them and saying, well, you paid through the friends and family portal. This is essentially your fault. We're not going to give you any of your money back, which I thought was interesting to tie back to this self-blame because people are blaming themselves for being victims of crime. And when they're reaching out to these formal institutions for help, these formal institutions are coming back to them and essentially going, no, it kind of is your fault because here's our terms for using the service. You didn't go through the proper channel, so it, it is your fault and we are not going to give you your money back. Making that connect- connection was interesting because at the same time, like PayPal is a business. It has to um, have policies. So I essentially, what is PayPal supposed to do in situations like this? Like, obviously... They have channels set up to protect consumers. However, when but when consumers don't take those proper channels, it kind of exists in this gray area where I feel like the true person at fault is the scammer. But now we're kind of stuck between PayPal and the victim and really whose fault it is. Yeah, to be honest, I'm not sure I would have recognized that it was PayPal friends and family and not PayPal regular. When can we when can we expect to see some something that I can read? Well, hopefully sometime maybe uh by the end of next summer. I look forward to it and and thank you very much for for sharing your time and your experiences doing the research. Thank you for having us. Thank you. If you're involved in cyber, then you're often expected to answer questions on everything from whether the computers and networks in cars have to pass safety standards to why it is that regulators seem to think that snarfing and juice jacking in airports is just something that we need to deal with. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert, and we happen to have cornered an expert on cybercrime law. 
Professor Nicola Vermey is the director of the Public Law Research Centre and the associate director of the Cyber Justice Laboratory at the University of Montreal's Faculty of Law. He has some great insights on the intersection between technology and law, but more importantly, he's patient and he's willing to answer my dumb questions, so we'll take advantage of that and we'll ask him this. Data interference, that's an interesting one for me. Does that happen anymore? Like, I'm aware of theoretically of, of crimes like salami slicing and and changing the values in, a, in an insurance computer or, or something like that. But these days, most of the things I hear about is a breach where data is taken wholesale or, or something more espionage. Well, again, data interference uh, under Canadian law, it's referred to as mischief in relation to computer data. And so that is a, a very broad uh, category, and I don't have the, the section of the law in front of me, but to paraphrase, basically it's anything that has to do with uh, modifying or destroying data or, or uh, gathering data. And then you have obviously unauthorized use of computer that means that you would be accessing data illegally. And so when you're talking about data interference, yes, that technically would fall under the, the, the umbrella term data interference, or, or again, in Canada, mischief in relation to computer data, the idea that uh, you're using ransomware because you're stopping somebody else from legitimately having access to that data. As to whether or not you know, classic uh, uh, data interference or mischief in relation to computer data happens, there are still some examples. There's one decision that I used to, to teach uh, back a, a few years ago of a student uh, in Ontario who basically was dissatisfied with his grades and so did the next logical thing and he hacked the computer system at the university and gave himself, gave himself straight A's. He was a nice guy. He did it for his brother as well. Uh, obviously, it was found out. Uh, he was kicked out of uh, the university and that's actually how we found out because the criminal case w was settled out of court. So he pleaded guilty and probably had to do some community service or whatnot. But he actually sued the university to be allowed to uh, finish his studies. And that's how we found out that there was that particular case. So there are those examples still. One that we lawyers in the field uh, love, even though it's a very sad story, uh, an employee for a, a government body here in Quebec, and I won't give too, much, too many details, uh, basically got fired. And then hacked the system to send a letter to the minister from the person that fired him saying that he made a mistake and that the person should be rehired, which obviously didn't work because you know, then the minister called the guy and said, why are you telling me to rehire him? And so it was found out very quickly what happened. But there are still you know, certain cases like those. Uh, but you're right. Today, when you're talking about cyber crimes, it's it's mostly either ransomware or basically just stealing large amounts of data. And again, I use the term stealing just in the colloquial uh, sense, but uh, unauthorized uh, access to data and, and unauthorized copying of data to then basically just steal somebody's identity or just sell it to third parties that will eventually use it for identity theft or, or simply just credit card fraud or things like that. At least that's what we see in the case law. And criminologists could give you a, a better uh, outlook than I could. I can just go by what the courts have dealt with and what's in the, the news. A big thanks to Professor Vermey and to Dr. Jennifer Shalley and Kaylee Derrickson for taking the time to chat about their research into pet scams. This has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research and its researchers. While it's produced by me, it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research.
You can find out more about the show at cybercrimology.com, and you can talk to me at cybercrimology on Twitter, or email me at cybercrimology at gmail.com.